Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's been a couple of weeks since I've spoken to David Wheaton. He is uh, regular on the program, as you know, and you probably have missed his voice a little bit lately because he has stepped out of rotation for a little bit, but he's back today, and I can hardly wait. We're going to continue our study on the book of Exodus. We're going to now uh, talk about the 10th plague and the Exodus beginning. If you've been following along you have been loving this study just like I have, and we're glad to have David back on the program. David, welcome. So glad to be back with you today, Bill. Thanks for having yeah. me on. Let's talk about how we got to the 10th plague. Just a little review. <laughs> well, it's been quite a long and circuitous route to get to this 10th and final plague in Exodus, and it's just an amazing story. If listeners have never read the book of Exodus and, you know, read Genesis and get into Exodus, it's just incredible uh, how God delivers his people, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to the land that he promised to them. That's why it's called the promised land, and, and it's called Canaan then, modern-day Israel, but just an amazing story. So there are these nine plagues that got us to where we are today, um, and each of the plagues that God had sent uh, on the Egyptians, and really specifically on Pharaoh, because he was the one who was refusing to let uh, the Israelites go off and worship as Moses was was requesting from Pharaoh, and he'd refuse and he'd refuse, and so God would send plagues and tighten the screws on them, like put them in a vice and tighten the vice, and he just wouldn't relent, um, no matter what happened. I mean, the Israel was basically destroyed at this point after these nine plagues of the Nile. Uh, and all the water in Egypt being turned into blood. And the second plague was frogs across the land. And the third plague was biting gnats or lice everywhere. The fourth one was swarms of flies. The fifth one was all the Egyptian livestock died. The sixth one was boils on man and animals. The seventh was hail that destroyed crops and everything. The eighth was a whole swarms of locusts that made the land just dark with, with grasshopper-like creatures. And finally, the ninth plague was darkness over the land for three days. And God was creating this distinction during some of these plagues, by the way, too, Bill, where the plague would happen in Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen, where the Jewish people were living within Egypt. So God was clearly showing his power over creation. He was clearly doing his work uh, in in the lives of not just the the Jewish people, his own people, but also in the lives of Pharaoh, showing them that all their false gods were just that. They were false gods. That mm-hmm. there's one true God, and God is that God, and we need to listen and obey him. Yeah, David, I always enjoy um, reminding the difference between worldly sorrow and true repentance. Yeah. That is actually a really important theme in this whole story of the plagues as we get to the 10th plague is that there's a difference between worldly sorrow or worldly repentance and biblical or godly repentance. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, 
for the sorrow that is according to the will of God, now there's godly sorrow here, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Then he contrasted the second part of the verse, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so why this has been a relevant issue all along is because during these plagues, Pharaoh would look like he's going to relent and, oh, you can go and worship, but don't take your animals with you or don't go too too far away or don't take your little ones. There was always a negotiation going on. There's always a or, or a rationalization going on. So there's none of that with true repentance. True repentance is is not sorrow over the consequences of my sin, but it's sorrow that I've offended holy God. It's I, I'm a wretched sinner. I don't deserve anything but your judgment, God. That that's that's real repentance. The kind of repentance we see in these this story of Pharaoh and resisting letting the people of Israel go is that, you know, well you can go but this. You can go but leave this or pray for me or this time I you know this kind of language shows that Pharaoh was never repentant, and it's his proud heart that kept him from repentance. He can't see what's obvious to everyone else. Even the, the people around him, his, his own kind of inner circle said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? They say to Pharaoh, let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So in other words, even his own people were saying, look, you've you, you got to relent here. Can't you see what's going on? You need to repent. Let these people go and worship. We're, we're, we're going to be destroyed. And Egypt was destroyed at this point, but it still wasn't enough. Mm. Even after all that had happened, Bill, it still wasn't enough that God is now, in plague number 10, going to send what, what we could call maybe the super plague, the <laughs> plague of all yeah. plagues. This is the big one. That, that is going to cast them, like make them like get out of here right now. Yeah, well, God was gracious enough to even sort of give a, a preview of the 10th plague coming. That's exactly right. And, and even throughout all these plagues, you think, well, gee, you know, God seems very harsh in these plagues and so forth. But really, he's actually giving them, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, more time to repent and turn to him. He's not destroying them. He didn't, he didn't do the 10th plague as the first plague. So there are all these plagues, and they should have seen, you know what, this, there is a true God. We need to follow him. We are accountable to him. We need to obey him. We need to let them go. But they weren't getting that. And so he was giving them so many opportunities to repent, as he gives us today many opportunities to repent. We don't serve a, a God who's on a hair trigger. Right. Uh, our, our God is a God of compassion and grace and mercy. He's giving us many opportunities to repent of our sin and turn to Christ. And so we don't want to harden our heart as, as Pharaoh did. And so he gives this preview of the, the tenth plague, as you were asking about. And the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn uh, among the Egyptians. And he says, and God says in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. I mean, this is going to be like there's no more negotiation, no more, you know, stay close to home or leave your children behind. This is God controlling history. And it goes back to, like, again, why did we go through the first nine plagues? Why didn't he just get to this one right away? 
Well, God knew that Pharaoh wouldn't relent. He knew he wouldn't repent. So God is showing he's getting glory by his judgment. He's not just doesn't get just glory in his mercy and compassion. He gets glory in his judgment because his judgment is perfectly just. Unlike human judges, he always makes the perfect decision. He always gives us exactly what we deserve. And only by his grace does he not give us what we, we do deserve judgment when we turn to him in, in, in repentance and faith. So God is achieving his purposes, not only in the life of Pharaoh, but of the Egyptians, but of Moses and the Israelites. Through all these 10 plagues, he's actually doing purposes, bringing some to saving faith, teaching some, the Israelites, about himself, making them further trust in him, getting Pharaoh to the point of repentance, which he never gets to, by the way. So he's got, he's got plans and purposes as we arrive at plague number 10. Oh, is it nice to have you back, David? We have missed you. This is awesome. Huh. David Wheaton is my guest. Of course, we're continuing our discussion on the book of Exodus. David, let's talk about the major feast for the Israelites that was instituted in the 10th plague. Well, the 10th plague is known as the, you know, the, the death of the firstborn. That was the plague, but it turned into really the most, I, one of the most significant, I'll just say one of the most significant feasts or festivals uh, for, the, for the Jewish people called Passover. And, you know, anyone listening to it say, well, Passover, that, that's still celebrated today by Jewish people. And even some Christians, you know, celebrate Passover to, to try to get a better understanding of, of Christ, the, the future Passover lamb that would take away the sins of the world. So in the, 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 the fact is, they're right about that. Passover, this feast, is based on this 10th plague, their deliverance from Egypt. And this is still celebrated. Here we are about 4,000 years later <laughs> in this particular moment, which we're talking about today in the year 2021, is still being remembered as God delivering the Jewish people out of slavery uh, to Egypt. And, and, and just the word you know, really tells what it's about, Passover. Uh, God passed over the homes of the Jewish people, those who had obeyed God's command to, to kill a, 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 a lamb and take some of the lamb's blood and, and, and kind of paint that blood over the doorposts of a house, over the lintel, the side, you know, side of the frame and the top frame of the house, so that when this last plague came, when God sent this plague, he sent his angel of death over the land of, of Egypt. And wherever that angel of death saw the blood covering that particular household, he passed over it. He didn't judge it. He didn't kill the firstborn as he promised to do. He passed over it. And anyone who didn't have the faith to put that blood uh, on the doorposts of their house, house, they lost their firstborn in this incredible, even hard to even fathom kind of judgment where literally every home in Egypt lost their firstborn and also of their animals as well. This is why it's called a super plague. You can imagine what this would have been like, the, the court of cataclysmic judgment and shock that this would have caused to the, the people of Egypt. And so that's where this, this Passover has come from. And this whole Passover is actually a foreshadowing. It, it's so profound, I probably couldn't even explain it to you, but of the future Passover lamb that would eventually take away the sins of the whole world, which was Jesus Christ. Can't even imagine what it would have been like that next morning. Well, can't imagine. 
Yeah, it, it says what it was like, actually, in, in Exodus chapter, I think Exodus chapter 12, I don't have the verse right in front of me, but they, literally they, they woke up during the night and they found out that they lost their firstborn and it was just a, a wail of cries came up uh, from the land of Egypt. Yeah, that the people were just crushed. I mean, you can you can just imagine what what this would be like, and you can imagine how this would just uh, you know just lead right away to the like get out of here. If now we've lost our firstborn, surely we are next if we don't right. let you go and leave this land. Yeah, I am I am aware of that verse in uh, chapter twelve, but I was just really speaking from almost a personal standpoint to think that uh, I didn't put the blood over the the door and you wake up to a dead child in your house. Can't, can't imagine it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and, and what's, what's so amazing about it, Bill, is um, the blood of course represents in the future, the blood of Christ that would be shed on wood as well on mm. that cross as the Passover lamb's blood would be on the, on the doorpost. Christ's blood would be shed on that cross to take away the sins of the world. Whereas, the Jewish people at the time of the Passover were being delivered from their physical bondage, slavery in Egypt. Christ would come someday, shed his blood, drain down on that cross to deliver or save those from spiritual enslavement to sin. And so the, the, the types are just so amazing. Yeah. And in every element of it, you know, take a lamb, a perfect lamb from the house. Well, Christ is the perfect Passover lamb. It must be an unblemished male. Christ is perfect, of course. Even the time when this lamb was, was to be slaughtered was the exact same day, time of day, that Christ was crucified in Jerusalem almost a couple thousand years later. Not a bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. Not a bone of Christ was broken on that cross and having the faith to put that blood of the lamb on the house would cause God to pass over that house. So he wouldn't judge the firstborn of that house. They wouldn't be judged just as trusting in the blood of Christ to cover your own sins causes God to pass over you in judging you and making you pay the penalty for your own sin in hell. And so the correlations are so tight and so profound. Wow. That is so true. David Wheaton is my guest. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll continue our study on the book of Exodus. Just a minute. guest we're continuing our great study with him on the book of exodus and david right before the break you were doing a masterful job of just sharing some of the similarities between the passover sacrifice and Christ's sacrifice on the cross i don't know if there was anything more to add to that or or was that it because it was great well, well there's there's if you ever look into like the the passover seder the seder meal maybe some of your listeners have heard of that and just the elements of that um, I was reading something about it, how there was kind of like three compartments where they put the matzah part of the bread in there, and that represents the Trinity, and only the second pocket where the bread was, only that particular portion was broken. And, I mean, it, it, it's so, again, like I said earlier, it's so profound and so deep. There would be so much more to say about it, but I think the headline is this. 
that the Passover sacrifice and, and killing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorpost, that that is the foreshadowing of a better, a perfect lamb. They sell, they, they sacrifice a Passover lamb every single year after this. Every single year one was sacrificed until the time of Christ came. And he was, what did John the Baptist call him? Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So even Christ is considered like the Passover lamb, an unblemished lamb that doesn't need to be sacrificed over and over again. He had one sacrifice that forever paid for uh, the sins of all those who will come to saving faith in him. And so that's the headline there is that this Passover lamb, the blood in the door is the same thing that we see in the person and work of Christ, that he was the lamb he shed his blood on the cross, and that when you receive what he did by faith, you believe that by faith, you trust in that full, you trust in his blood as covering your sin, that God will not he'll pass over you in judgment. He'll save you and welcome you into heaven because your sins have been covered by the perfect Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. David, as we talk about the 10th plague, and of course this is the plague of the firstborn uh, the death of the firstborn, it this really is excruciating to think about and to try to navigate through this passage of Scripture. Uh, and it came in chapter 12, We not only was the firstborn, uh, but it was also the firstborn of cattle, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was very pervasive. And I was actually looking up whether it was just the firstborn males or just the firstborn, whether male or female. And um, there's a little bit of dissension on that as, you know, getting clarity on it. But you, it, well, you're right. It was the firstborn not only of humans but of, of animals as well. So this would have been completely devastating. And we had mentioned earlier that uh, when, when this plague happened, it says in Exodus 12, verse, verse 30, or actually I'll back up one verse to 29. Now it came about at midnight, just as the Lord had said it would, that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh, okay, so Pharaoh didn't escape this, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Wow. In other words, top of the food chain to those in the most meaningful, menial, menial uh, situation in all of Egypt. And as you mentioned, all the firstborn of cattle. And then the, here's the reaction in verse 30. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. And then the immediate next verse is, then he, Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron at night. He didn't even wait, not a moment, and said, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, go worship the Lord, as you have said, take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. There was no negotiation here, not, you know, don't go too far away. It's like, just go. He, he's bowing his head, at least temporar- temporarily, to the creator God, the, the God of all gods, because God had totally destroyed all the other gods of Egypt. He had repudiated them, stomped on them. There was just nothing left. This was complete and utter defeat. He's acknowledging that Moses' God is far greater than the gods that he hold, held as his own gods. And not only that, Bill, but the people, as they're being kind of pushed out of the land now, are, are actually, they, they're gaining favor by the Egyptian people. It says in verse 35, the sons of the Israel had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and gold, and the Egyptian people had given them favor. And so they gave them articles of gold and silver, valuable things, 
And it says this in verse 36, thus they plundered the Egyptians. So they not only were shoved out of the land, they were shoved out of the land enriched, you know, with gold and silver and clothing, all these things to go on their journey. They weren't being left destitute mm-hmm. leaving the land of Egypt that they, that they had basically built for the Egyptians. Wow. All right, David, let's talk about not only the size and scale of the exodus out of Egypt. I mean, this sounds like it's going to be massive undertaking, and there's probably no porta potties, is there? <laughs> no. This was a, a movement of people, you know, unlike probably anything in human history. Um, probably around 2 million people uh, <laughs> were part of the Exodus. The, the Bible says in, in Exodus chapter 12, uh, it says, Now the sons of Israel journeyed from between Ramses and Sukkot, towns, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. So if you add women and children to that, you know, 600,000 men, likely around, let's say, 2 million people leaving. Now, you have to think back to many months ago in our previous conversations when when Joseph and then his brothers first came down into the land of Egypt. That was 430 years to the day, by the way, earlier. That's how amazing God is. He has things happen wow. to the day. Uh, 70 sons of Jacob, 70 of Jacob's family had come to Egypt 400 you know, about 400 years earlier, in 1875 B.C., and now 430 years later, in 1445 B.C., they're leaving. So 70 had turned into about 2 million. Wow. It was a mixed multitude. It was not just Jews. There were some Egyptians and some others, but largely it was the Jewish people. And uh, it was an amazing, you can imagine, I mean, what the logistics of that and getting food for everyone. But God would provide for all that as they made this journey from Egypt up to what is present-day Israel. Uh, it's so nice to be back into the study. We just have about 90 seconds left. Are there any other interesting little facts about the beginning of the Exodus? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just pick two things, is that they didn't take the shortest route, <laughs> as we are going to find <laughs> out next. Yeah. Um, they, 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 all they had to do was kind of go east a little bit and then north, and it wasn't going to be a very long journey, maybe a, I don't know, a four- or five-day journey. Uh, it would turn into 40 years. And <laughs> they started going south, and they hooked around, and there was a lot of disobedience in the desert and so forth. We're going to be getting into all of that. So they didn't take the shortest route. And uh, they were being led in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lord would lead them. God would lead them in a pillar of cloud by day. And then at night, there'd be a pillar of fire by night. So just imagine that for a second. You know, here you are, this miraculous plagues you've seen in Egypt and you're walking out and it's it's you're being led by God himself manifested in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Amazing. I mean, what an awesome thing to consider about this awesome God in epic exodus. Just amazing. David, I'm so looking forward to continuing the study. Thank you so much for doing the show today and I'm looking forward to our next time together. So glad to be back with you, Bill. Thank you so much. David Wheaton has been my guest, of course, Host of the Christian Worldview. You can go to the ChristianWorldview.org to learn more about David and his amazing show on Saturdays. I never miss it. We'll take a little break. And uh, coming up next, we're going to talk to Chris Corsi. Be right back. Let's get it. 
Welcome back. You know, we all have triggers, stuff that sets us off, sets us off, and we start to go, oh, it's the traffic jam, it's the rejection, it's maybe someone at work that you're really struggling with, and a good day can all of a sudden become a bad day. And under the right conditions, all of us can be pushed too far. And then the trick is to try to figure out how to get back to having healthier emotions. We'd like to think of that as that sweet spot. So what's the secret? Now, you're going to be surprised to know that it's as easy as flipping a switch. And Chris Corsi wrote a book called um, The Joy Switch, How Your Brain's Secret Circuit Affects Your Relationships. I'm very intrigued by this. And Chris is an ordained minister, a pastoral counselor, a published author, and a big-time international speaker. He and his wife, Jen, lead and design the Thrive Training Program that uses brain-based exercises to train leaders, families, and communities in the 19 relational skills and the Emanuel lifestyle. Chris, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for saying that. I am intrigued with the book. I'm intrigued with the idea. I'm, there's so much on brain circuitry nowadays, and I know inside of our brain there's a, a pretty um, complicated relational circuit board, isn't there? Yes, there really is. And we've learned a lot about this relational circuit board in the last 25 years. And you say in your book that there are like two, one version of on and two versions of off in our brain. I'd love to hear about those. Yeah, so this, this circuit breaker is very much like a light switch where you can walk into a room, turn on the light, and suddenly you can see the room around you. And other times there's certain things for certain reasons or certain people or certain conditions where that switch goes off. <laughs> and we all could probably think about and recognize those times where we go from a good day to a bad day. Something shifts, and next thing we know, the people that we love feel or you know feel more like enemies. Whether it's a family member, a coworker, we're just not glad to be together. And so we can call this off version of the relational circuit. Off means enemy mode. So Ooh. people I normally care about. They just kind of feel like enemies, and I want to win. I want to protect myself. And it's just not pretty what happens when we go from relational mode to enemy mode. And we all can have those moments, whether it's on the highway when we're driving, and maybe somebody cuts us off or somebody says just the thing to hurt our feelings or just maybe it's even a certain tone, and that switch goes off. And we're just not feeling a whole lot of joy in those moments. So, Chris, how can I tell when my relational circuit is on? Yes, one of the great things that happen when I'm in this relational sweet spot that I call it in my book, one way we know is when it's on, I'm curious. So hmm. I'm curious about what you're thinking or what you're feeling. Now, when the switch goes off, I don't really care about what you're thinking or feeling in that particular moment. That's not a, It's not a good reflection of my heart, the heart that Jesus has given me. Uh, the other thing I can check is appreciation. Can I feel some appreciation right now? This means I can I can feel gratitude. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for God's gifts, and I can appreciate the things or the people or the moments in my life. When I go into this enemy mode, what happens is I really don't feel appreciation. I usually feel resentment. 
I don't feel thankful. I just feel mad or I feel worried or I just feel offline. Um, another quality is kindness. When I'm in relational mode, as we call it, I feel like being kind. I'm tender with weaknesses. I'm patient. I'm understanding. When I go in enemy mode, I don't feel like being kind. I want to win. I want to cut in front of that driver or I want to have the last word in that conflict. I don't really care how I come across to other people. And that's just not a place we want to visit for very long. And the final ingredient here is eye contact. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in relational mode, I can look others in the eyes when I'm interacting with them. But when I go into enemy mode, I really don't want to look people in the eye. I just, uh, or if I do, they're going to get the icy stare. It's, it's not really a, a fun place. So with a little bit of practice, we all can learn to tell the difference from being in this relational mode, this joyful mode, uh, or we go into enemy mode. And we see the examples in Scripture where there's times, for example, where Peter told Jesus that he would never deny Jesus, and Jesus knew he would, and Peter ended up doing the very thing he said he wouldn't do. And so that's kind of what happens in our brain when we go from being glad to be with people where we flip into enemy mode and we just kind of go into self-preservation. There's lots of great examples in Scripture about that. Chris, I bet you can call yourself out pretty quickly, can't you? I can. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. I can. My And my family knows this. I have a wife and two sons, and, and we all understand this kind of lingo and this terminology. So yeah, well, they have no problems calling me out when uh, I'm not feeling some joy. They can they can see it on my face. Like usually it's because I'm in back pain or maybe just didn't sleep very well. Sure. It really, it really helps to have a kind of language for this stuff. I mean, it's a big picture. There's body, mind, and, and spirit. I mean, when you're yeah. um, when you're not being relational, when you're non-relational uh, versus relational, you can probably feel it in your body, can't you? You know what? You can. We can, t we can completely feel it in our body. And like when we're mad, we get hot. Or maybe when we get worried, we, we kind of lock up. Uh, I think about Moses when God told him to speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. He was mad at the people. <laughs> I am, you know, we all kind of feel like that sometimes. We just, we just feel hot or we just feel overwhelmed. And we do feel it, notice it in our body. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Jim Wilder gave a really interesting endorsement um, on your book. And he said, politics, money, and religion. Why are these, uh, why are there topics and people we just cannot talk about? How does family love turn into shouting, silence, hurt feelings, and distance. The joy switch explains the clear mechanism in the brain that few people understand, but we all see. You know you already need to know this. I was very intrigued by that because I know, I mean, you can see people like arguing, having this very heated argument, and they're kind of raising their voices, and then the phone rings, and it's, hello, hey, how are you? It's like, oh, whoa, 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 what happened there? Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, you can go and sit in a coffee shop and you can watch people and often you can tell who's, who seems to be in relational mode right now or who seems to be in enemy mode. And, and you're exactly right. With, you know, with this lens, it's fascinating to look around us. And, you know, I, I think just our world is kind of stuck in enemy mode in some ways. And there's a lot of conflicts and hurt and big feelings. And, uh, yeah, we are. Our relational circuit is not staying on very well at times. Now, I know this is, I'm sure, 
getting a lot of interest uh, from people because they're they're probably doing some self examination. Uh, how how do I know if I'm in that mode? What what can I do to move myself out of that place? Because I don't want to stay there, and you know I don't think there's anybody that wants to not feel the joy that the Lord has for us in our life. And I know I go through periods where. I get grumpy and tired, and you start to feel less connected to people, less relational, and that doesn't feel good. It never does. No, it it does not. And you know what? Most of us with big, loving hearts, we tend to feel sad or even guilty at times when we when we're in it, when we slip into enemy mode. We might you know think something we wish we weren't thinking bad about someone, or we might even say something we wish we could take back. I think all of us can relate to those times where we just don't feel like we have that joy. And it's no accident in my mind that Jesus um, told the disciples that he has, he has spoken to us, that our joy would be in him and that our joy would be full in John 15. And, you know, with a little bit of practice, we can learn to get back into this relational mode. And in, in the book, I, I use a term called CARS, C-A-R-S. And CARS stands for connecting so just we connect with people where we feel seen and heard and understood. We all have good friends often who are just good listeners. We know if we'll if we'll talk to them or call them, they're really good at just helping us be able to kind of calm down. So that's the C. The A in cards is just appreciation. So we can reflect on God's gifts in our lives. And those gifts might be people. They might be moments or experiences that were meaningful. I live in Michigan, and I I can enjoy some beautiful sunsets sometimes, and I just feel like that is such a perfect gift from God. So that's appreciation helps me to get back into relational mode. R, the R in cars is for rest. Sometimes we just need to press the pause button, take a couple deep breaths, and that helps us be able to kind of come back online. And then the S um, is just for exercises that quiet our body. And so I encourage people, I say, yawning is actually good for us, even though we tend to think of yawning as a bad thing uh, in society. But yawning is actually releases good chemicals in your, for your body and your nervous system that has a calming effect. So Olympic, uh, Olympic athletes will often yawn before a big race because what it does is it just helps your body to kind of stay in its sweet spot. So all of these very practical ways can help us get back into relational mode. Some people just want to go sit outside and enjoy the outdoors or walk a, walk a dog around the neighborhood or just watch the birds out a window. Uh, There's lots of things that we can discover, lots of gifts that God's given us that we can enjoy. just takes a little bit of practice. Yeah, because I always find that I yawn right before a big nap. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, yep, that's, and that's okay. Yeah. That's good. Yawning has a good quieting effect on us. It does. Chris Corsi is my guest. He's written a book called The Joy Switch, How Your Brain's Secret Circuit Affects Your Relationships. Here's something you wrote, uh, which I really liked. It said, staying in the relational sweet spot keeps a rhythm of joy and peace going, while staying in enemy mode is costly. It is expensive to run the brain's relational engine into the red. I'm starting to think you're onto something here. You know what? I, I I think we all relate to those times where when we haven't been able to rest or we've had a full day or maybe it was a bad day, a short night's sleep, um, just some conflicts at home or at work. All of these things can really take a toll. And we find that our our wick is shorter and shorter. So what that means is it just, when we're kind of at the edge, slipping into enemy mode, it doesn't take a whole lot 
to just put us out of our relational mode. And that is, that's where we tend to lose our joy and we just start reacting. And I find that there's lots of things in this world that can put us in enemy mode. And so we have to be purposeful about pulling the weeds in our lives, in our gardens that are just robbing us from the good stuff. But I'm so thankful we have a God who is present and loving and with us and faithful that we can turn to to really help us hold on to this joy. Mm-hmm. I'm with you on that, Chris. Let's talk about some of the relationship busters. You talk about some roadblocks. Um, one of the questions you have is, what threats or fears hinder your relational circuit? That's a pretty big question. That is a big question. And you know what? We all have these buttons that we have uh, in our lives that kind of put us in enemy mode. One of the most common um, ingredients that can put us in enemy mode is just any threat to self is what I call it in the book. So anything that activates my survival circuit. So it might be that bad driver that ran me off the road, or it might be um, someone at the grocery store who's rude. Anything that that just causes my survival circuit to kind of kick into gear for self-preservation. Those are the moments I tend to go into enemy mode. Maybe it's a loud noise and I'm startled. And that really changes my mood. Another ingredient would be unprocessed pain. We might have some rocks in our shoes that we need to get out. And those rocks are usually some of the hurts in our lives that just won't go away. And we just need to pause and get some of God's peace in those areas of our life. But wherever those rocks are, we tend to step on that and it hurts. And then we we don't like that. And it kind of puts us in enemy mode. And loss is a big one. So anytime I feel lost, I might be loss of a loved one. Um, this loss of, you know, I was looking forward to connecting with my friend or my spouse, and, the, and, the, and it got canceled. Loss is often a big one that puts us in enemy mode. We're just not made for loss because we're made for life. And so anything that is loss-related can really make it hard to stay relational. Um, physical needs, just fatigue is a big one. My wife has low blood sugar at times, and I can tell by the tone of her voice when her blood sugar is crashing and she needs a snack, something to help her get back into relational mode. Um, and then there's just mi- any mis- missing relational skills. So, for example, if I don't know how to manage what I feel, maybe uh, you know, you're, my brain has to learn how do I get back to relational joy from my anger, from my despair, from my disgust. And there's times where I just haven't learned some of these relational skills quite yet. So whenever I step on that landmine, that missing skill shows up. And that might be someone who just doesn't know how to calm down when yeah. get upset. Yeah, common, yeah, common things like that. And, Chris, I bet you're really good at bringing your wife a snack, too. <laughs> I've learned to get really fast in those moments <laughs> where I, I can tell she needs some sugar. <laughs> you bet. Yeah. I take them on, on trips. We take them when yeah. we travel. I'm prepared. I bet. Let me take a short break. Chris Corsi is my guest. He's written a book called The Joy Switch, How Your Brain's Secret Circuit Affects Your Relationships and how you can activate it. We'll be right back with Chris. Just a minute. Joy today in the Joy Switch with Chris Corsi. Speaking of joy, I just wanted to let everyone know that this um, 
November, we've got this wonderful promotion coming up with Prepare Him Room devotional giveaway. So if you want to get in on that drawing, we've got two devotional bundles and two copies of Prepare Him Room. That's Susie's new book. Go to MyFaithRadio.com to check that out. But our brain and what we've discovered about brain science is we're discovering that there is a switch inside that three-pound melon of ours, and it activates joy and the secret of healthy emotions. And Chris Corsi has written a book called The Joy Switch, How Your Brain's Secret Circuit Affects Your Relationships and How to Activate It. Chris, I'm reading about packaged joy as our relational oxygen mask. I found that intriguing. I'd love for you to say more about that. Yeah, so this is a fun one. And all of us with a little bit of practice can can build this habit into our lives and our relationships. And the habit is just learning appreciation. And so appreciation are these gifts that we can unwrap. And these are God's gifts in our lives. And so appreciation is often when I'm pausing to just reflect on some of the good stuff in my life. It might have been that moment today where my wife brought me a cup of coffee in the middle of a a big assignment, or it might be that chance to watch my sons when they get home from school and they walk through the door and we're glad to be together. And so when you think about those gifts in your life, and especially those moments, what happens is your brain responds as though you're reliving the moment all over again. So it's a fascinating thing that we've discovered from brain science. But, you know, this is also a very biblical kind of a skill that, that scripture tells us that we should be a thankful bunch. And so what we can do is we practice appreciation as we practice remembering the good stuff. Um, and as we practice, you know, gratitude, which is just being thankful for that good stuff, what happens is this, this is a way that we better navigate the hard stuff. We can suffer well when things go wrong, and they, they do go wrong. And this is a skill that my family practices around the dinner table. So every night at the dinner table, we share three highlights from our day and one thing that made us sad today. And so for every sad thing, we share, we have to share three good things from our day. And so we're, well, we're honoring those hard things do happen, but we're trying to grow the good stuff. And when people have learned this habit, their brain starts to scan the environment for good things to enjoy instead of bad things to be critical about. And so it's a fascinating skill, but God made us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and he made us for glad to be together joy. Yeah, so it's just training our brain to start to see the things we're grateful for and what we appreciate. And yeah, and yeah. when I was thinking of the, the package joy, I, I was thinking of when people talk about their happy place where, you know, you're about to get uh, a crown and they just put, uh, you know, three shots of Novocaine in your mouth and they're going to drill <laughs> and you go, I better go to my happy place right now. Yes. And I always think of that as kind of the patch, package joy and the, real, and the uh, oxygen mask. Yes. And you know what? We all have those moments in life that are just really hard. We don't look forward to them. We're not excited about them. And so you're exactly right. You know, often in the dentist chair, if they're going to work on my tooth, thinking about those good special moments, what it does is it keeps me anchored so that I can better handle the hard stuff that I'm dealing with. So as we practice this skill, all of us continue to reflect the people that God made us to be, even in the excruciating conditions and circumstances that we might have to live in. It's just wonderful skill to practice. Mm-hmm. So how do we not only 
sustain this switched on life because i think this is what we all want to do is have this switch on and then keep it on um what's the best way of sustaining it you know what one of the things i hoped with uh the book is exactly this that people would have a language and a lens and some practice there's actually 19 exercises in the book so that people can live the switched on life and so part of it is we just need to understand when it happens and so in my parenting if there's times where my wife and i are you know, we're focused on a problem instead of a relationship, then we will pause and say, you know what, let's have this conversation in a few minutes. Daddy needs to get back online here. I need to get my oxygen mask on here. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. you know, just having the language goes a long way, but then starting to notice. We all, all of us have unique reactions when we go from relational mode to enemy mode. So just giving ourselves permission to pause. Get relational, catch your breath, get a little bit of joy going anytime you lose it. And learning to do that um, just keeps relationships much bigger than the problems. It really is a life-changing skill as we start to talk about it and, more importantly, practice it. You say, uh, here's a peace check. Pay attention to your body. Evaluate my breathing. Attention and focus. Calm or busy thoughts and easing muscle tension. Uh, I think those are all good things. Yes. You know what? The peace check I really like because what it does, it just helps us to pause for a moment and say, hey, how am I doing right now? Um, We can usually see it in other people. Sometimes it's harder to see it in ourselves in a moment. But the peace check is just a chance to pause and notice how's my body doing right now? Am I tense? Am I holding my breath? Um, (laughs) What am I focused on? Am I focused on joy? Am I focused on a problem? Am I calm or are my thoughts really busy or how's the muscle tension in my shoulders and so forth? These are all just, in a sense, it's a litmus test to help me determine, am I anchored in joy and peace right now or am I just completely losing it and I need to pause before I go any farther? Uh, So these 19 things that you discuss in the book, uh, I think we have time for one more. Can you give us uh, an example of one more? Yeah. So one of the fun things that we often do in our household, uh, my wife and I before bed, is we do an exercise where we practice appreciation. And we just practice, you know, highlighting three things from our day that were good. Then we share three things about each other that we enjoy and appreciate. And then we share three things about God that we appreciate. This exercise takes 10 minutes. And I'll tell you, every time we do this exercise, my wife is asleep within minutes, whereas her brain might keep her up for hours at times. We do this exercise. It's a great way to end the day, puts us in a very joyful place, and it's so life-giving. So just appreciation, what I enjoy about you, what I enjoy from my day, what I enjoy about God. It is a life-changing, simple little exercise. I mean, don't you guys run out of material for each other after a couple of weeks? (laughs) We never do. It's amazing. We, we just, it's, that's what you would think. But as, as we start doing it, there's always something new or something fresh that I'm thankful for. It's, it, it's amazing. You just never run out. It's, yeah. Not, it's, it's a good, good practice. Yeah, not to barge into your pillow talk, but what was maybe something you heard last night? Yes. Yeah, so my wife enjoys any time she just feels appreciated by me, and I, and I verbalize it. So she and, and the same for me. My wife appreciates that I'm a I'm a sensitive guy. She appreciates that I'm a good listener. 
And so just hearing that from her, I could just tell it just there's something about that that just puts me at ease. And I just can, you know, rant and rave about all that I enjoy about her. And so it helps us to focus on the good stuff and not get lost in the, the tangled mess of the heart, the bad stuff. And, uh, Chris, I would say that's a recurring uh, affirmation that you probably never get tired of, of hearing from her. That's right. Never get tired. It has no expiration date as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, because uh, she's letting you know that she feels heard and valued by you. And that's that's emotional money in your bank account, isn't it? Oh, it really is. And it just makes my day every single time she'll say that. I never get tired of that. It always <laughs> blesses me. Yeah. Well, so nice to meet you, Chris, and thanks for spending the time with me this afternoon. Hey, thank you. This was wonderful. Oh, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. It brought me joy. There you go. It worked. <laughs> thanks so much. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. You bet. Chris Corsi has been my guest. His book is called The Joy Switch, How Your Brain's Secret Circuit Affects Your Relationships and How You Can Activate It. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then Hour 2 is our Old Testament series with Dr. Peter Kapsner and I. And have I, have I talked about how excited I am for this hour? I think I have, but I'll mention it again. Coming up in the next hour, Bill Arnold is my guest. I'm just going to leave it at that. You might feel confused right now, and I understand. It'll all make sense in about five minutes. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.